Here in Orlando, Florida, O-Town Compost is leading the composting revolution, recycling organic waste into a nutrient-rich resource. Join Charlie Pioli, founder of O-Town Compost, as we hear from the nation's leading voices behind the grassroots community composting movement. Welcome to the Community Composting Podcast. Please rate and review on whichever podcast platform you're listening to. If you feel like this is good content and you're learning a lot about composting. Hi, welcome to episode number 15 of the Community Composting Podcast. I have here Igor with Bootstrap Compost in Boston. Bootstrap has been a huge inspiration for O-Town Compost ever since we started. And I I used to be a subscriber myself when I was a, a college student living in Boston, or actually I was in Austin at the time. But um, that was when I was introduced to this community composting business model. And Igor and his, um, you know, co-founder, Andy, were some of the first people that I came across who were doing it. And, you know, I'm so thrilled to be here today with Igor Mm -hmm. to kind of ask him questions and hopefully share what it's like being like more than a decade down the road of the community composting uh, journey. So thanks, Igor. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. I'm always really thrilled to learn about all the new community composting ops popping up and especially folks like yourself, Charlie, who, you know, were inspired by our model. It's incredibly humbling to hear those messages come in from all over the country. as being one of the first to kind of pioneer this really great movement that we're all a part of. Yeah, and um, where did you and Andy kind of get the idea, you know, all the way back at the beginning? Yeah, so Andy took a trip to Vermont and he saw this business called uh, Earth Girl Composting, I think. And it was a lady in Vermont who was just doing kind of a similar thing, giving out uh, containers, buckets, um, collecting people's food scraps and composting in, in her backyard. I think she had a handful of uh, a couple dozen clients at the point at the time. Andy took that idea as inspiration after having some, you know, failed business ventures, um, took it down to Boston and opened up shop. Um, a few months later, he took me on as a marketing guy. And over the course of the next year, I just worked my butt off to scale and enhance the business. And eventually we kind of made an agreement to bring me on as a co-founder and as a co-owner. That's so awesome. And I, I think I, I remember that your background is actually in like digital marketing and you, you produce some amazing educational videos for Bootstrap that I watch on YouTube. <laughs> Thank you. I still do a bit of freelancing in that in that area, especially with filmmaking. But I did. Um, my background is quite quite varied and all over the place. I actually moved to Boston back in '09 to study neuroscience um, in hopes of getting a PhD um, at Boston University. Um, quickly realized that that career path and trajectory just wasn't for me in terms of academia or science or lab work. Um, It's obviously a noble profession, but I just needed to be more out and about. Uh, I really believed in sustainability as a cause and as a personal and hopefully professional career choice. Um, And the way I combined my interests was to learn digital marketing, which was up and coming at that point with a lot of these platforms like Facebook and Instagram, just being just only being a few years old and Twitter. Uh, So I started taking some internships, some courses and that kind of work. I taught myself how to, uh, how to do some, how to make films. I uh, was an intern with the Emerald Necklace Conservancy, which is this very historic, beautiful park system in the Boston area where I would do digital marketing as well as create films for them. Eventually I found a job after a pretty rigorous job search at City or Boston being their first ever digital communications coordinator set up their Twitter, um, you know, built up their website, served as an editor for some of the bloggers that that were uh, core members and staffers. 
um, and also continue to produce films and building up that skill. At the same time, I met Andy and um, I was one of the early adopters of the service and I would always bug him like, hey man, do you need some help? I'm like, I do the video film stuff. So he eventually agreed and consented to uh, sort of a podcast or a video in my case, operation like this, just telling the story of where Bootstrap was at. At that point, I think Andy had about, I think I watched the video actually a couple of weeks ago just to remind myself of where we came from. It is our 10th year, so we're kind of, you know, we're operating on all cylinders, but we're also super grateful that we've made it this far. Um, so I watched that video and I think he had about 84 clients. This was back in September of 2011, I believe. Wow. And it's kind of, it's, it's, so, it's so funny because we have, you know, over 4,500 clients now and we've kept over seven and a half million pounds of food scraps out of, you know, landfills. And I always thought, wow, what, what if we got a thousand clients? Wouldn't that be something? What if we had revenue of a million dollars? We'd have really accomplished something. And since then, we far surpassed that. And it's just been an incredible ride. Often, often very fun <laughs> at the same time, often very tough and challenging mm. through the ups and downs that, you know, a business goes through during the growing pains to, you know, transitioning from kind of an owner operator into like more of a man. Well, I'm still owner operator, but like now I manage and do big, big decisions and delegate. Whereas in the early years I was doing the pickups and doing the cleaning and just kind of every year, I feel like my job responsibilities change with, with this, with the, uh, with the growth that we've had, fortunately. Yeah. Do you mind sharing some of those initial challenges in the first couple of years and you know how you and Andy overcame them? Yeah. I mean, well, we talked about before the pod, you know, like insurance, for example, it's one of those things you don't think about until someone sends you an email and says, you know, if you want to do business with us, we need a certificate of insurance. So then you like, you, you have to figure out what that even means. <laughs> you know, we found a broker who explained everything to us. Um, we were actually really fortunate to be a part of the Mass Challenge Business Accelerator Program in 2012. So for about three and a half months, we were part of 124 finalists picked out of, I think, 1,500 applicants. Um, and for that three and a half months, we were paired with mentors, you know, CEOs of small and large companies, uh, professors, insurance agents, CFOs, uh, serial entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, angel investors, you name it. People would just come in and talk to us and help us build a slide deck and our pitch. Um, and it was a really good time um, for, for us to grow and expand. And it's one of the reasons actually uh, Andy and I did work out that deal and me coming on board because we still needed Andy to really manage operations on the ground. And I was willing to take on some of that responsibility, but also dedicate a lot of hours toward Mass Challenge to ensure that we would grow as a business and install and kind of create the right systems. From right. there on out, we kind of went from an operation that, you know, where our pickups for the day were on a piece of paper and our billing was conducted with a name and check boxes. We might've had a spreadsheet, I don't know, to, you know, everybody was getting invoiced um, per month. It was, it was a very inefficient thing. So we would probably lose out on 10 to 20% of revenue every month. And we would look at ourselves and be like, why are we still broke? We have more clients. Why are we still broke? We got more clients. And of course we finally set up automated billing. We set up a software um, that served us really well for a few years with our routing and client management. Um, we brought on a commercial billing manager as well as a residential billing manager. So I guess the moral of the story is, I mean, you have to just be very flexible and patient as you're developing and growing a business. Cause one challenge, one thing that might seem challenging one day becomes a completely different challenge. And then another day, such as mm -hmm. who do you get delegated tasks to, to how much time and money should be spent on social media or a social media uh, employee, um, 
Should we expand you know, our shop? Should we keep it limited? How do we keep up with growth? Or why are we losing customers? So yeah. there's always just, I, I mean, I, I, I kind of consider it my job to be the guy that points out the problems and finds the solutions. I love going around and patting everybody on the back because we have such a solid team from our director to warehouse manager to all of our drivers and warehouse assistants um, and customer service people. I mean, I'm really grateful for the, all the work that everybody puts in and they're very dedicated and committed to the service, but that doesn't mean that problems don't come up and that, that we don't have to solve them or that ideas don't come up and we don't, we have to figure out ways to, uh, figure out ways to implement those ideas instead of letting them just sit because a lot of these ideas are great. So, yeah. And, you know, we experienced that all the time too. Today we had our first bear tear into a bucket and uh, the wow. customer was pretty livid about it. So, um, but I love the fact you highlighted the mass challenge. Um, I, you know, I have a similar story where I went through the Rollins Entrepreneurship Accelerator Program. And uh, it, it, if anything, it was worth its weight in gold due to the people I networked with and kind of like leverage to move the business forward. Uh, and it sounds like, you know, you are, were more of the visionary in getting things, uh, the business growing. And, but did you... Um, really use that that accelerator program as like did you make any key relationships out of that that uh really you know launch padded your bootstrap yeah we certainly did first off i just want to back it up so o-town composting is in orlando right right how do you did a bear escape the zoo how do you guys have bears down there it's Florida. We got everything. Um, but you're going to find a Python in one of these. Buckets <laughs> no, but we live near, um, this preserve forest uh -huh. called Wakaiva. Okay. And, um, yeah, bears are pretty common. I didn't realize. Yeah. Up in Seminole County. Um, and we serve two counties right now. A lot of the people who are subscribing from Seminole County, that's their first question before they even subscribe. Like, is this going to be a problem going to attract bears? And we've never had a problem before. Uh, we just encourage customers to keep that, that lid on tight and secure. Uh, but what we might have to do to solve this problem, if the customer still wants to remain a customer of ours, is we might have to actually ring on their doorbell that way the bucket's not left out unattended where the bear might, you know, have a, a window to come in. Again, it's one of those unexpected problems, right? I mean, mm -hmm. we've had buckets that we opened and it was full of diapers. It's like, come on, they were compostable diapers, but like, we don't, we don't compost human waste. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, you know, other times we've picked up, you know, material from kitchens and you'll find a, a, a chef's knife in there. You're like, man, I'm glad I didn't, you know, yeah. take my hand in there. Um, one time we had rats that ended up making a little nest inside of our compost pile that we keep for compost distribution. So we had to deal with this and, you know, wow. just had to kind of get rid of a lot of that compost because we didn't know what our it was a you know infested or not and you know just wanted to play it safe on that front so yeah that's interesting about bears i don't remember what was your question again we kind of um it was about the mass challenge, oh, the mass challenge. Like that's right any relationships and how they kind of furthered uh the growth of bootstrap compost yeah i mean i still keep in touch with some of the entrepreneurs and occasionally there are alumni events um and occasionally some of the folks that i worked with come of use to me in terms of, hey, we are looking at 401k plans. So our insurance broker, we met at Mass Challenge and he introduced me to a guy that does 401k plans. So um, we had a lawyer that drafted our in documents uh, incorporation that was a Mass Challenge person and charged us a very low fee for that service, even though he was a big shot, but he just believes in sustainable causes um 
So I wouldn't say, I would say I've gotten at this point, you know, 10 years in and nine years post-mass challenge, I've gotten relations across the board, but there are still folks at mass challenge, fellow entrepreneurs and folks that we still work with that, uh, that I have in my Rolodex, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me shift gears a little bit. Um, when the 2004 Massachusetts statewide organics mandate happened, which was essentially mandating any food waste generators of up to a ton per week or more. Um, did you like, was that a huge turning point for uh, your, your customer base? Because, uh, you know, I had, ha I had um, Connor with Black Earth Compost on this podcast a few episodes back. And he said that that was a, a big turning point for him. Um, yes and no. We, uh, so I believe you said 2004, but I think you might've meant 2014. Oh, that's what I meant. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that was three years into our existence and, um, we were still pretty heavily focused on, you know, residential clients. That's our main clientele. Um, and we, we don't quite have the capacity to deal with somebody that produces a ton of food waste a week. Mm -hmm. We worked with a brewery at one point um, and they were producing about a ton a week. Um, and it was a lot of work because it's a lot of manual labor, lifting these heavy spent grains and Rubbermaid containers into a van. It was way past the capacity of the van payload. So we were always a little bit, not way past, but it was past the capacity. So we were always worried something might happen. So we sh sort of shifted gears. Um, Connor's business, Black Earth, they have trucks with, you know, hydraulics and, um, you know, they can tip bins as they go. Mm -hmm. um, we, we've since then gone away from that and kind of pursue more office clients, small cafes, uh, very small niche re restaurants. So we leave the big clients to the big dogs, I guess. Yeah, and you're we're the, kind of the minnows yeah. at the bottom, just getting all the little little guys. Um, you're but, like uh, the finesse composters. <laughs> yeah, the finesse. We call it a. a um, what do we call it? We call it a. Mm, what's the word we use? I forget. But um, like it's a specialty service. You know, it's like buying a Tesla instead of a Nissan Leaf, that sort of deal. Or And will you go up into the 50th floor of a downtown Boston apartment complex? Yeah, that's what we would do. Or an office, you know, that's on the 26th floor. Um, we, and they, they'll usually get a stainless steel. So our office service is very specialized. You know, you get a stainless steel can, it's lined with a, with a compostable bag um and then our guys come in and actually take that out give the bin a quick look over a wipe down and then put a new bag in we also offer with that you know a free hour consultation sort of a lunch and learn um oftentimes we'll buy them the food people will come in learn about the merits and benefits of composting what it even is um and it generates a lot of uh you know, I've gone to pick up, I've gone, done, done a lot of pickups in my, in my career here at Bootstrap. And, uh, you know, I, I do hear people talking about composting or what they're going to do with their gardens. Cause we return compost back to our businesses as well. And people can come and take that home. Um, whereas our residential services, uh, quite different. You get five gallon buckets that are actually, that also have a compostable liner and you get either weekly or biweekly service. And those get actually swapped out. So you get a clean, fresh, disinfected new bin with a liner. Um, um, and the old one we take back to our warehouse that you filled up with your, your food scraps. And we always say anything that grows, goes. So, I mean, like we do accept. We didn't at first, but now we accept with the blessing of our farming partners, meat products, dairy, as well as all the you know vegetables and produce uh, and fruit and all that stuff. So... Yeah, but um, going back to that question that you mentioned, I, I do think the ban raised awareness about composting because all of a sudden compost, compost became a, a news-like item and people had to start paying attention, not only 
not only big corporations, but also the individuals that work there. So I think overall, as these bans have become more commonplace around the country, and especially in the Northeast, um, I think it's slowly just raised awareness and it's led to maybe more Google searches about composting, what composting is. People may be composting in their backyards more now. I think in general, it's just as the knowledge of, about composting spreads in, in a variety of forms, I think it's making more people aware, more knowledgeable and more understanding of all the benefits that include composting, not only keeping food waste out of landfills, but reducing your greenhouse gas footprint by, you know, instead of offsetting methane in a landfill, which is a much more potent greenhouse gas, you're instead creating carbon dioxide, which is 14 to 20 times less potent mm -hmm. as a greenhouse gas. You're also creating soil amendment, um, to, which is full of nutrients and micro and macro decomposers in there that are helping to build a healthy soil in your garden, on your house plant. Um, and it sequesters that carbon too. Exactly. And lately, the past few years, people have realized, well, soil also takes in carbon. It has to so that the plant can actually, the roots can actually grow. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's an incredible resource that unfortunately in America, we just haven't taken enough advantage of across the world probably. Um, I mean, I think only about 14% of food waste is composted and, and, uh, and if you include cardboard and leaf and yard clippings, like I think upwards of 40% of that, of everything that goes into a landfill can be composted. Yeah, that's very true. And that's why uh, another reason why I shifted gears from my solid waste consulting job and started targeting the, the organic waste because it made the biggest piece of the pie that was going to the landfill Whereas standard recycling is great, um, you know, you know, conserve those resources. But uh, if you really want to address what where the weight lies, it's um, with organics. As you start to take on more food scraps, you realize very quickly that you need a better composting system to process the material. This is why I highly recommend the aerated static pile micro bin designed and made easy by O2 Compost. In 60 days, I have finished compost without putting in the labor of turning the pile. The piles heat up to over 140 degrees, killing pathogens, weed seeds, and fly larvae, making the end product safe to use in the garden. With 32 plus years of experience in the compost industry, Peter Moon, owner of O2 Compost, is a leading expert in the field of ASP composting. I encourage you to set up a free half an hour consultation with Peter Moon by going to his website, www.o2compost.com. That's the letter O, the number two, compost.com. If you mentioned that you heard about O2 Compost on this podcast, you'll receive a 10% discount on the purchase of the Microbin Compost Training Program. So... Yeah, I wanted to ask you about your your farm partnerships. You know, a lot of community composters are, you know, both the collector and the processor, or they're just the collector, kind of like bootstrap, or they're just the processor. You know, they just take in food scraps and, you know, turn right. it into finished compost. But, you know, walk me through the beginning, like how the business model became became just collector and then how you worked out those farm partnership agreements sure you know first we we started with a local farm in boston that one of andy's friends was the head farmer in or at and so what would happen is we would we would be collecting so little within the first year even after having 100 clients we would maybe have two pickup trucks worth of like larger bins full of just food scraps. And we would just take those to the farm. That was about 10 minutes away, 15 minutes driving from Jamaica Plain, which is where we had the majority of our clients at that point. And that's where also we did our cleaning and sorting. And that's where we paid off our neighbors with pizza. So they, would, they wouldn't complain to the local town board or the health department. <laughs> um, at one point, I mean, this is a ridiculous story, but I was living with eight people. It was crazy, two stories, but eight people still. Um, and uh, 
we actually ha only had one kitchen and we didn't have a spigot outdoors. And my business partner, Andy's backyard was getting a little bit too full. So we had to start shifting our operations a little bit to my backyard. Um, and it was a pavement. It was just a paved driveway sort of area. Um, so it was perfect for cleaning. We just didn't have a spigot. So what I would do is fill up two pitchers full of water, leave it for my roommates. I would attach a hose to the faucet and then run that hose all the way three stories down so that we could fill up our bins and do our rinsing and washing. And that's just like, that's like your, that's like your stereotypical, like running it out of the garage, running it out of your backyard sort of founding. Um, so we continued to work with that farmer for a while. He ended up getting a farm in, in, in another part of Massachusetts, his own farm. We were sending food scraps there. We made a farm partnership with another farm in uh, Greater Boston. I'm just not giving names because I didn't ask them if I could for permission's sake. Um, but just somewhere in the suburbs of- Yeah, Boston. just, you know, this one was about 25 minutes away. And then we started to, we got a warehouse and we started collecting so much. At that point, we had about 250 to 300 pounds or uh, subscribers. Um, I don't remember what that translates to in tonnage, but probably probably a ton and a half to two tons a week that it was becoming a necessity to make multiple farm trips a day, um, large farm trips, uh, not multiple farm trips a day, I'm sorry, multiple farm trips a week mm -hmm. um, to, to a larger commercial composting site. We found one um, on the North shore of Massachusetts about a 35 minute drive from our warehouse. Now we're actually closer to that site, only about 15 minutes away, which has been very helpful, but they, they do it like, they do it legit with, you know, applying heat, using large tractors, having sort of an in-vessel model. Um, and uh, they take the majority of our food waste, but we still work with the smaller guys and we have a partnership, um, as I mentioned to you before the pod, you know, I, my family and I moved to Providence. We set up a warehouse here. We're going to be running our Providence operation out of Providence. And we already have a few smaller farms down here that we already work with where we drop off food scraps um, with them and they help us turn it and manage it. And we're always looking for community gardens and local farms that we can give this resource to. You know, Andy and I and a lot of folks at Bootstrap get upset when you're when somebody goes up to us and says, you make money collecting trash? Well, we're not collecting trash. Yeah. We're collecting a, an incredible resource that's good for the community. It keeps, the, it keeps our planet healthier. It makes our soils healthier that are getting depleted. Um, there are just so many reasons to, to, to do the composting thing. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and I'm a little bit surprised, like since you guys are so massive now, and you just are getting close to your 8 million pound mark um, that, you know, you're able to uh, find, you know, enough farms and, you know, small farms. Like it sounds like a very decentralized model, which is good rather than taking it to like one massive compost site where you got to drive, you know, 200 miles to. Um, but yeah, I, I just... I wish I had farmers who were willing to take in like, you know, uh, two yeah. box trucks of filled with food scraps a week and that they were willing to do the processing and they had the knowledge to do the processing. So it wasn't just becoming a mess. Uh, how do you have those conversations with those farmers? And well, I would, I would, I would first off just say that, you know, only probably about 10% of our scraps or less go to community farms or gardens. It, it is one large commercial composting site that takes most of our scraps. So I do want to make that clear. Um, that being said, you're right. I mean, probably out of all the farms we reach out to, maybe only half of them even write back to have a discussion. And then maybe only a third of those or less actually are willing to take us on because farmers are already so busy and the margins are so tight in their industry. And a lot of farmers are actually 
you know, broke for a long time before they can actually turn a profit because of all the equipment they need to finance and the land and the land use. And, you know, folks get concerned too about what we talked about earlier with, with vermin or other, you know, rodents coming on the land. If you're a farmer, you don't want like rabbits coming on your land and eating up all your crops because there's a compost pile. So there's always a certain sort of can, do we have time for this? Do we really want to take this on? If we can sell them on our mission and just, you're right, like educate, or they're already aware. Um, we had a few farmers that already had a small composting operation that would work with us. Some that just knew about bootstrap and knew the, com the community aspect of our operation and how much we do in terms of compost donations, financial donations around the area. Uh, talks at schools, uh, universities, you name it, you know, all the goodwill that we do. Uh, and they just wanted to work with us and be associated with our brand. So there's a number of things you can bring up during a talk, but ultimately it comes down to the farmer if they have the space, time, or interest to compost it or whether they don't. Does Bootstrap provide any help in the processing? You know, you provide a staff member or two? Uh, we don't, we don't actually offer any, um, any of that, but we do periodically test the compost that they produce and then we can send them the results and kind of talk about what they could be doing better or not, depending on what their carbon or nitrogen levels are in the, in the compost. We have a soil expert, Aaron, who's, who's, um, who's just incredible in, in, in his knowledge of composting and soil health and pH levels and carbon levels and what you need to add, what you don't need to add. So staffers like him are super valuable for keeping those partnerships alive as well, because we can go out there and, and at least help them on that level. But we don't provide assistance in turning or anything like that. We have in the past, you know, either donated some money to that farm if they're helping us out for free or come up with some kind of small financial arrangement that incentivizes them. Um, so and what do you work out some kind of like buyback agreement of the finished compost or where does bootstrap usually get There's nothing formal in place with anyone that I know of. Um, most the commercial compost site gives us comp as much compost as we want because we don't take that much to be honest. Um, and by take that much, I mean, there are people that go in there and buy 20 yards at a time, mm -hmm. you know, we're picking up like, five yards in the spring, six yards. It's, it's not crazy. So they'll just give it to us because they like what we do. Um, with the smaller partners, we, we sometimes take some of their compost or we just let them have it. Um, mm -hmm. So okay. it depends on their needs as well. Cool. And um, for the commercial composter where it sounds like you take your lion's share of material, uh, you know, do you pay tipping fees? Yep. yep. Yeah, there's a tipping fee involved. And that, uh, you know, factored in to the business model that, you know, how do you look at that tipping fee? And a lot of us community composters, you know, we're bringing in pounds, you know, we're not bringing in tons. So, yeah, it's becoming a it's becoming a, a, a topic of conversation, the whole idea of getting our own property, getting our own land. We have several master composters on the staff that have gone through the compost training. Aaron, again, is a great resource for soil health. We've never done that sort of, I mean, we've never gone that route because it's just a lot of, first of all, it's just tough to get a composting site in general because oftentimes the community just doesn't want one, you know, the, the board of trustees or whatever for, the, for that city or community just is suspicious and wary of having something that could generate odors or rodents or anything, you name it. Um, then there's a lot of regulation and permitting that you need to do. Like you have to have a certain slope. The runoff has to go into a certain kind of sludge pond or other drainage of sorts. Um, there are yeah, regulations as to how much you can take and depending on the size of your plot, et cetera. Um, but on the flip side, it seems like more and more 
folks and investors are looking to capitalize on composting as they're seeing a lot of these bands come in and they're seeing, and we're seeing, all of us are seeing, at least in the Northeast, a shortage of commercial composting sites. A lot of digesters are going up, but not enough composting sites that create the best possible compost that you can make, which a digester does not. Yeah, it's like the higher value from compost versus a digester. Yeah. Uh, it's really no competition. But it sounds like Massachusetts, even even though you're a decade ahead of Florida, you're struggling with compost infrastructure. And yeah. It, yeah. Most, most we've tried at some of the bigger farms that do the composting as well, and they won't take on any new clients. It seems like everybody's kind of locked into the partnerships they have. Um, and again, there was a composting site here in Rhode Island that was doing pretty well. And I believe, or maybe it was, southern massachusetts i don't remember but it was brought up during a conversation i had with a fellow composter and they got shut down after being in business for 10 years because just like the the, the demographics of the community changed and the residents all of a sudden had more power and they didn't want you know the the smell of this site anymore it was a smell thing now if you compost um properly and you know and there are new technology like there are a lot of technologies available now where you can actually do it indoors. You don't need to have right. it outdoors and have all that smell be generated. Yeah, so, let me recommend the gore uh, method of composting that is like essentially a breathable blanket that you put mm -hmm. over the piles. And I was just in New York City where I toured the big reuse site where they're using these yeah. blankets and they're able to compost. The one under the bridge there, the Queens Bridge. Yeah, exactly. That's an incredible site. They it's in the middle of the city and you can't smell a thing. Exactly. They're by these high-end hotels. On the other side is the projects, like the Queensboro projects. But, you know, still, I, you know, I walk 20 feet away and I can smell anything. So, unfortunately, there is that not in my backyard mentality with a lot of um, in residents. But it really doesn't make sense to me because... They're building subdivisions here in Florida right next to the landfill, which has the, yeah. you know, it smells like methane all the time, that sharp methane smell, um, which would be, I believe, a great place to site a composting site is on the face of a landfill and, you know, use that, that land that is essentially worthless for, you know, many decades. And I think... Black Earth up in Manchester by the sea is actually trying to uh, fundraise in order to build a new composting site on a land mm. up there. So, okay, that's really yeah, that's a that's a good point you bring up. I mean, there are so many abandoned sites, warehouses, um, even around Boston that you know had had it not you know would it not be for certain regulations and zoning, you could put a composting site there and there. A lot of there's a lot of technology you know i have a you know thing pulled up a tab pulled up for this continuous flow in vessel composting crate that essentially uses what looks like what would look like a you know a, a, a shipping cart um and that you know helps with maintaining smell there's the site that you mentioned that's under the queen's bridge um yeah. queensborough bridge maybe i don't know yeah uh, but I've been there as well. And there's, if, if a lot of the community gardens combine, you could just create smaller, you know, sites that don't smell that are also maybe contained. Um, so smell is becoming, I feel like, I feel like as we're going to move and digesters, I don't want to discount them either. I mean, they're, they're there for a reason as well. They, they harness electricity. So, um, um, and they still produce somewhat of a product that's just not a high, very high grade compost. It's more of an industrial compost. Mm -hmm. um, so In the digestate, like the, the solids that are left over. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I know the one in the one digester, they send it to the wastewater treatment facility and that gets added on, I guess, after the wastewater is treated and it's mm -hmm. part of the last step and they harness the digester itself harnesses the heat and then the that facility takes that 
slush or whatever it's called um, and creates, I guess, pellets out of it. And these pellets can be put on like, like a city, like in a city park on the grass or on the trees, stuff like that, or maybe to grow biofuel, ethanol, corn. Oh, kind of as like a fertilizer. Yeah. But it's not nearly as nutrient dense as compost or even something like we're trying to, we're working with this company on, on setting up a piece of equipment that can create a bunch of worm castings. You can add upward of several hundred pounds a day of food waste Mm -hmm. and then create worm castings, which are super potent. Yeah. I know um, there's, it's been a contentious issue with ISLR Institute of local self-reliance and like lore with Zero was one of the people who brought up the fact that there's a lot of digesters and depackagers in New England, or I don't know if there's a lot, but there's enough um, that, you know, get this very contaminated inbound organic material, they grind it up and Mm -hmm. it's filled with microplastics. And then they will like, pay farmers to apply it to their land or you know i i just think that it's such a emerging technology like community composters and public officials should be like very cautious about this yeah and it's interesting too we did tour a digester um i won't say which one but we did see that it what they do to some extent sort and try to sort that stuff but then on the flip side it also takes out the bioplastics that people think are so compostable and they think they're doing something good but i think it just contributes to our culture of being wasteful that we've kind of created in this world or in the western world where oh i'm getting a compostable cup i think i'm doing something good and in some ways you are but in a lot of ways that product will never actually get properly composted it just gets kind of sorted aside in these digesters with the other plastics um mm-hmm. the exceptions are smaller things like like compostable bags they still go through the process and get composted but a lot of those forks knives plates um especially those pla utensils yep. that resemble plastics i mean yep how is a consumer to know uh yeah. whether that's pure plastic or PLA or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just a couple more questions for you. Uh, yeah. One funny question, following your Instagram, we saw that you had a picture, Bootstrap had a picture of maggot salt. Is that what I think it is to kind of suppress uh, any black soldier fly larva or maggots in your bins that you might store until you bring them to the processing site? Cause that's something we're up against right now is just we call them dancing rice because (laughs) yeah yeah it's it can get you know especially back in the day when we do like maybe two or three farm runs a week you know those you do get a lot of first of all a lot of folks we encourage people because they're clean bins to keep their bins inside and by their kitchen counter under the sink you know, there's nothing dirty about our bins. We clean them, we sanitize them, et cetera. Still, a lot of people choose to keep their bins outside. So that not only attracts, well, bears in your case, in our case, squirrels and <laughs> uh, raccoons who, to, who end up like chewing on the lid and just making a mess of things. But it also, it also sits out there in the summer heat and it's a closed container. It's like 90 degrees, 95 degrees outside. It's cooking, it's just cooking like crazy. And it's attracting the fruit flies and the maggots. And so we're collecting it. We're dropping off. We're, um, you know, uh, they aggregate in these larger bins that we put it all in and ship it off um, to our farms. Um, and one way to contain the fruit flies and the maggots is to actually put salt on them because it, 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 it dries them out. But probably not too much salt because that would affect the, the compost, correct? Yeah, I mean, it's just a little sprinkle on top. You know, when you're talking about a bin that's got about 150 pounds of food waste in it, then you're adding maybe 
four ounces of salt on top. I don't know, it's okay. eight ounces of salt. So it's not, it's not a crazy amount. No, not at all. And it's table salt. So it's not like we're using the stuff that freezes ice in the winter. That would be, like, uh, that would okay. be bad. <laughs> cool. Well, yeah, last question. And you guys have already achieved like, you know, goals you didn't think were attainable in the first couple of years of Bootstrap's operation. But what are your long-term goals for, th for the business? Uh, whether those are diversion goals, I would like to know. Whether they're just, you know, cultural goals. Where would you like to see composting uh, at in 10 years as, as a nation? Because I feel like this community composting coalition, we're all working in the same direction. But, you know, some, you guys are like, way ahead of a lot of us so you are the inspiration kind of leading the movement yeah um well we hope to continue doing business obviously and hopefully continuing to grow so that we can offer clean jobs and jobs that are really that make you feel good to people you know at the end of the day you know you've helped you know keep stuff out of landfills and make a you know cleaner planet whether you're, you know, a driver or a warehouse assistant or you're in management or you're in customer service. Um, we really love our clients. So we're working on various programs, um, not working on, but just solidifying and getting better at a variety of programs that make the bootstrap experience a lot better. Um, we started a new service called Ground Control where Aaron goes out and he can... Um, you can find it on our website um, under the, I think, under the about us section or under the services section tab. And, you know, he'll go out and he'll do like a pH test and a, and a lab test of your, of your soil and see how it is, how it's, how it's looking in your garden or your lawn. And then you can, you know, subscribe to that service and get them to come and visit you once a week. And then you get a discount on a lot of our products in the shop, which we're also growing, um, whether it's selling compost, just compost or our bean town blend, which is a bean, a blend of our worm castings that we produce plus our compost, uh, whether it's compost tea that we recently put on there. Um, we've got a couple of other products going up on the shop and we really want to expand our presence in the shop as salespeople of, things that are good for the soil. Um, you've got big picture goals. Are we going to acquire land? If we do, how is that going to work? You've got small term goals, like going down to Providence and hoping to grow this community and getting a real presence here. You've got the goals that we've already always had, like just generally increase our presence. Um, with residential and commercial clients. You know, I gotta say in light of COVID, we lost a lot of our offices or so a lot of them suspended service. Um, a, a lot of the cafes either closed down or cut their budget. So composting wasn't a thing anymore. So we lost a lot of revenue that way. So we had to make it up and just growing the residential sector, which it did. Um, but our goal for that is to get our commercial clients back and kind of like remind them, Hey, like we're still here, we're still operating and we'd love for you to, to, to come back to us now that things are, you know, hopefully overall getting better and um, just striving to continue to, to again, give people an income doing something good and make sure that clients get the best possible service and includes just a variety of things. And, making sure that folks within our company, for me, it's important that people grow in their jobs and their roles, that they get promoted or adequated or adequately compensated. Um, you know, uh, we're rolling out finally. We have a little bit of a more mature workforce now, whereas it used to be, a, it's funny, it's like the company itself at various stages has hired people that kind of reflect the stage of the company. So we were a lot of 20 somethings at first um, with Andy being our senior figure at like 33, 35 years old, you know, now we're all a little bit older, 10 years older. So now we have staff who are, who reflect that who are in their thirties now, or even early forties. 
Um, and, you know, the company has just matured in a lot of ways. And now, you know, it used to be, I would send out an email, does anybody want a 401k plan? And I would barely get a response. Now everybody's super hyped. I finally brought it back. Like, okay, let's do this. Let's actually put, set this in place. So, you know, working on things like that and the partnerships and doing talks at schools and hopefully just everybody in the just country and community being able to work together, grow together. Um, I really don't like the whole race to the bottom mentality. I think every service is different and can offer something different. And the client, the consumer has to choose what they want. Um, it's the same with every industry. You can buy a $4 sandwich at Wendy's or you can buy a $10 burger at or $15 burger at a restaurant. It just depends on what you're looking for and what you want. And we're just trying to continue to eclipse every year what we did the year before, you know, as a, as a premium service. That's what I wanted to say earlier. We consider ourselves a, you know, a premium service in the sense that we do collect the buckets, clean them. You get up to 35 pounds of compost back per year. You can request more and we can make an exceptional or sell you compost at, at a certain rate. Um, and yeah, that to be the best at what we do really. Yeah, that's, uh, that's so great. And an interesting take on, um, you know, the whole community composting vision. And uh, yeah, I think there is no real competition in this industry. It, it's not like uh, two mobile phone companies with like the same, you know, service offering. Right. Uh, so yeah, well, thank you so much, Igor. Um, it's been a, a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And I've been like, you know, this feels like Christmas morning just having you on the <laughs> podcast. So, Hey, man, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I hope we can do it again. And to anybody listening, keep on, keep on composting and keep on building on your dreams. All right. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoy the Community Composting Podcast and want to support future episodes, please follow the link in the episode show notes to give a small monthly reoccurring donation, even if it's $5 to $10 a month. We'll continue to come out with killer content to keep the grassroots movement rolling.